Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck sticks? What the fucksters? What the fuckadelics? What the fuckleberry fins? What the fuck, Minister Fullers? Mark Marin here. This is WTF. Welcome to the show. A full show, a packed show again. We do these little interviews these days, occasionally, sometimes. In a few minutes, I'll be talking to Jordan Brady about his uh, documentary, I Am Road Comic, which I am in. Because I am road comic. Well, I come from that. I come from a history of that. I come from that weird post-comedy boom time before the the advent. Is that the word? Advent? Before the, the appearance or the reality of alternative comedy venues when all you had was a comedy club and the three slots they had available for their regular shows and their open mic night maybe once or twice a week where you'd go and you'd wait and you'd try to get on to do your three to five minutes in hopes that you might land a guest spot on a real show and then maybe get that coveted opening slot as host and then after years perhaps move up to feature act and then because it's your hometown never be able to headline unless you get too big for them to say no to that's the way it used to work that's the way it was so before I talk about that a little more, before I lead into Jordan Brady, who also did the uh, movie I Am Comic, he was a comic himself. After Jordan Brady, I'm going to talk to Jay Baker, the, the son of, of Tammy Faye Baker and Jim Baker, about his, uh, his spiritual quest and his quest through, a, through addiction and, and through uh, trying to establish his, his own church of sorts. He's also a fairly prolific writer about religion and spirituality. Uh, I was excited to have the opportunity to talk to him. He came down to talk to me from Minneapolis. He's a fan of the show. And uh, I thought it was a story that had to be talked about and had to be told to me. Uh, I was interested to meet him. Sweet guy. So before I get into those talks, let's talk about what I got coming up. Nevada City Film Festival. That's in Nevada City, California. That's this Friday. That's tomorrow. For those of you who are listening to this show on the day it is released, I'll be doing two shows with the uh, with the wonderful Nick Thune. I say I also have a few oddball dates coming up: uh, September seventh in Denver, September twelfth in Mountain View, California, September thirteenth in Irvine, California, September nineteenth in Dallas, September twentieth in Houston, September twenty first in Austin. Those are the last of the oddball dates. 
I'll also be doing several Trippany House dates here in Los Angeles at the Trippany House that is in residency at the Steve Allen Theater here. Many of you came to these shows. It's a cheap ticket. There's parking. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen. It's a no-pressure situation for me, but I do know I will stay on stage for at least an hour. That's September 16th, 23rd, and 30th, and October 14th and 21st. And, of course, the L.A. Podcast Festival, Saturday, September 27th. I'm trying to book a fun show for you, but there's all kinds of deals to be had over there. You can go to, uh, again, WTFPod.com and get the links to these to these shows and these tickets. Long, strange trip. Yes. Yes, it's provoked me to talk when I'm talking to Jordan Brady to remember where I come from, to remember the path here to this mic, the path to the Oddball Festival standing in front of 15,000 people, the path I took and could not get off of, nor did I know how to get off it, nor did, did I even entertain any other real choices with any, with any momentum. I, there was nothing else to do but be a comedian for me. I'd hung around the comedy store. I was at the comedy store the other night talking to uh, to the uh, to the master Joey Diaz, just thinking uh, about what it was like standing on that patio and knowing that I'd stood on that patio 25 years ago, trying to be a comic, trying to find my way in. I tried to find my way in in a lot of different cities. But once I started working in 1988 in the one-nighter circuit of the Boston, uh, New England regional area, doing one-nighters, driving five and a half hours to Machias, Maine, in my VW Golf to open up for uh, Frank Santos, the X-rated hypnotist at a college uh, you know, in, a, in a town that is the furthest point east on the coastal United States, Machias, Maine. I remember driving hours upon hours into the New England landscape for doing, to do one-nighters. I remember doing feature work uh, you know, on, in, in clubs across the country. Thank God I moved to San Francisco in 1992, and I was a pretty strong feature, and it didn't take me long to start headlining. I was able to, to sort of skip a lot of the tedious feature work just because I, I just had the goods, and I'd worked hard to get them. That's what doing one-nighters in, uh, in New England and anywhere you can get them uh, will do. <laughs> it makes you tough, man. But I think a lot of people don't really appreciate what some comics go through. It's a different world now. Comics can sort of choose their own path and pick their own room and avoid the club system entirely, what's left of it, and find their own way. And that's fine. It works. Uh, but some people don't cr- quite understand what the what the job of comedian is necessarily. A guy came up to me at the comedy store last night and a new comic, been in it two years. He said, does being a, com- a comedian help you with auditioning? And I'm like, I, I didn't know what he was talking about. It, it, that's why you're getting into it? I always had sort of a, a weird thorn in my side about cats who'd get into doing stand-up just so they can get a few minutes together to showcase for other things. It seemed like a, a bastardization that they were, they were carpetbaggers in the profession that I chose and love. But, you know, I've, I've grown a little soft over time. And, you know, whatever anyone's got to do, they got to do it. And there's uh, obviously plenty of room for everybody not necessarily to get paid but certainly to to dump their shit out into the world which is fine and i i still believe that the guys that have the goods and that can do the job and that can you know find their own place within it within the business and on stage are gonna are gonna do okay one way or the other gonna make a living it might not be an easy one and some guys just fall away to the side 
Now, okay, so let's talk to Jordan Brady, and I want to tell you people, you know, out of the gate here, that you can go to imroadcomic.com to buy the movie, or you can watch it on Hulu, and and uh, and, and this is uh, me and Jordan. I've known him for years, and you'll feel that when we... Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Talk. So Jordan Brady, film director, documentary director, commercial director, former comic. Former comic. Former comic. I remember you. I remember you. I remember you with your hair. Oh, it was a good looking mane of hair. Come God on, man. Me. It was like a, it was sort of like a mullet, hair metal. Soccer cut, they called it back in the day. <laughs> Soccer cut? Hockey cut. Really? Oh, so it was a kind of full mullet then. Full, yeah. And uh, what was it, like the 80s? You were doing the, you, you know, you dressed, you know, modern? <laughs> modern? You're so polite. Was that, what? no, I just remember headshots. You had a thing. Yeah. You, you had a thing. Had a look. Yeah. Tried for a look. It was a specifically 80s look. I mean, you got to look at those headshots and be like, that was that time. Sadly, even in the 90s, I had an 80s look. Did you? I think that was my demise. Yeah. What are you leveling off on now? I'm just trying to keep it together. I'm like 2005 right now. <laughs> you know, when I ran into you again, I guess for the first time it was in Canada, and you were working on a commercial, and, and you had done um, I Am Comic, which I had seen. You yeah. were a little surly about not being in it. I see, like, I must have blocked that memory. What a dick I was to you about not putting me in that movie. You weren't a dick about it. I was reasonable. You were very reasonable. I just, I think at the time you made most of the movie, I wasn't really on the radar yet. And you're like, oh, yeah, Marin. You probably thought, like, he's kind of in the same boat I am. I wonder what he's doing now. I was in the game, baby. Banging your head against the wall. You do the I Am Comic movie, which got some traction. People dug it. So the new movie, I Am Road Comic, you know, what do you see as the distinction? I mean, now they're both available. What, you can get them on iTunes and Netflix and whatnot? Right now it's on Hulu. I am Road Comic. I am Road Comic is on Hulu, and I am I am Comic. It still lives on uh, on iTunes. You can and buy I, it. Yeah, you can buy it. And I saw a DVD. Uh, it wasn't in the bargain bin, but it was actually leveling the bargain bin. It was under one of the legs. <laughs> Don't want that bin to shake. <laughs> right. So you leveled it off. <laughs> but you, I mean, you could get I am Comic pretty much anywhere. But I am Road Comic. What made you do this one? What was missing? Nothing was really missing. I mean, I'll be I'll be honest. Yeah. I am comic. It gives me a connection to the community of comedians that I respect and love. Mm-hmm. I love comedy, but I'm not a practitioner regularly. Regularly, uh, so I like that. Mm-hmm. I like being in that world. 
And I Am Comic answered a lot of questions when I would be shooting commercials when people, like YouTube made me do I Am Comic. Right. People on set with their laptops not paying attention to what we're shooting would be like, hey, we found this clip with you in the hair and the green suit. Yeah. So what was that like? Yeah. Do you know these guys? Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember shooting in Atlanta. Yeah. And the guy's like, do you know Mark Marin? Uh-huh. My kid loves his show and you sent the guy the yeah. t-shirt oh, and yeah. a bunch of stuff. It was really cool. So I said, I'm just going to make a documentary about that. So once I made I Am Comic, different comedians or documentarians yeah. reached out. Stephen Feinhartz. The director of uh, Eddie Pepitone's Bitter Buddha movie, and, and he just directed uh, Eddie's new comedy special. In Ruins. In Ruins, yeah. Now on Netflix. Young, uh, young, uh, young gun, young director. Great kid. Yeah. So, so people like Stephen call and saying, hey, I'm making this comedy documentary. Like I had asked people, hey, what, what advice do you give me making a documentary? Mm-hmm. And uh, Don Barnhart comedian hypnotist <laughs> vegas act mm-hmm. who made one called uh finding the funny that's the name of the okay so he calls with some questions about that and at the end of the conversation true story he goes hey i'm booking a gig up in kennewick washington yeah at jack diddley's do you want to do the gig jack diddley's and i go jack diddley's <laughs> how what did i do he goes you can co-headline Go up with a friend, and you do like 40 minutes each. When was the last time you did 40 minutes? Uh, when I had that haircut. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I headlined some colleges. I, know, I did I some shit, but I mean, I had maybe seven minutes. <laughs> and I go, Don, I don't, I don't do it. And he yeah. goes, no, nah, you'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, fuck. Now, Jake goes with me. My son goes yeah, with me to yeah, clubs. Yeah. I did a set a couple weeks ago. Struggled to do 10 minutes. You're back in it? Just for for fun, when people people by mistake will ask me if I want to do it. Okay, flappers in Burbank. Hey, do you like they filled a form? The How's improv. Th- I got seventeen bucks. Couple like uh, the end of last year doing the improv. How does that feel? It's I got nothing to lose, man. I don't give a shit. You know, no, but I mean, I'm not like afraid the, to fall out the sky. It's easy. No, I know. It's fun. It is. It's a blast because I have nothing at stake. Yeah, I'm not in the Jordan Brady comedian game. Right. So it's a fucking you, blast. You and Judd Apatow, back in the oh, clubs. yeah. Back in the clubs. He's been hitting it, I, I see the Instagrams. His yeah, stand was funny. He had, clearly, he's got some talent, that kid, yeah, Apatow. Yeah. So th- so what was it that you were setting out to do with I Am Road Comic? Because you had gone up to, 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 to Jack Diddley's. I went up to Jack Diddley's. Yeah. I cobbled together 25 minutes. Mm-hmm. Very hacky, some of it. Really? A lot of, a lot of crowd. A little you? bit. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> Thanks. A uh, little crowd work. And I play the fool in the movie, but yeah. it's not about me. It's about people like yourself, your interview, which I thank you from the bottom of my heart for doing. I love doing it. it we, well, we both had a, a friend in Frank, Frankie Bastille. Yeah. And the Frankie Bastille story is a big hit, both comedically and emotionally, because that guy sums up the road. Yeah. He sums up, he was running from the law at some yeah. point. Yeah. He was you know, servicing an addiction, and he just lived the yeah. road. Got to do your time. And yeah, and there was a badge of honor yeah, oh, to, yeah. to just partying and yeah. living on the couch and yeah. staying in comedy condos. Yeah. So that your story about him and and then your point of view about uh, the the quote people say from you is uh, that's the big trick. How do you balance developing a persona right with, against servicing, with servicing the, road. the road? Yeah. So I went up and I went up and did it, and I interviewed you, Pete Holmes, mm-hmm. who, who I call the heart. I mm-hmm. call you the soul. Mm-hmm. T.J. Miller, I follow for a couple of days down in San Diego at a club, not even a big venue, mm-hmm. just the American Comedy Club, mm-hmm. and the joy 
that he has doing those intimate, what I call an intimate audience, a club. Yeah. Where he could he could go sell out a small theater, I'm sure. Yeah, you would think. Uh, and then, you know, interviewed Maria Bamford, uh, Doug Benson, Jen Kirkman. I think Nikki Glaser is the only person in both movies. And Wayne Fetterman. Wayne Fetterman went on the road with me. Yeah. Because we used to do like a, a musical act. Well, I think Nikki, out of all yeah. the people you mentioned, is, you know, really the most sort of what we knew the road to be. You know, like um, like she does the clubs. Oh, yeah. You know, and people like Maria and Pete, you know, they, they're they they're delicate flowers in that, uh, you know, these were, you know, not Maria, well, Maria a little bit, but there was definitely a generation that was us that, you know, I didn't start in alternative rooms. You know, you didn't, there was not. There weren't alternative no, it, rooms. No, it's like you go to right. your club and you wait around, you pick your city, and then you fucking just take the hits doing open mics and, and until you get the, the opener slot. And then you come up through the ranks. Well, in the South, we would drive from Virginia to Atlanta to do five minutes to get booked. But mm -hmm. if you got booked, he'd put you in eight clubs. And you would be the middle act. Right, or the, that was the, the one-nighters. Well, the the two-nighters. The comedy zone and then yeah. the, the punchlines were right. like this, this chain. Yeah. But, you know, but a lot of the people that work now, like Pete and those guys, I mean, they've it, you know, coming up where you have alternative venues and you're able to build your following differently. I kind of like Maria's like the best there is right now uh, comedically, and and one of the reasons is is that you know she's by no choice of her own had to protect you know what is specifically hers by virtue of not really being able to do it any other way, and because of that you know I I don't think it's been easy for her, but she is a uh, you know really one of the best comics working. Agreed. That's part of the big trick mm -hmm. is whether it's on the road or in town is sticking to what you do and protecting them. Well, that funny thing is, like, yeah. I don't know if you listened to the Bob Newhart interview, but that, that to me was very telling about what we're talking about. Like, when he became the biggest comic in the world, he had not done comedy. That, he, it, it was fascinating, dude. Like, he, he you know, he had uh, kicked around a little in advertising and did some accounting work, and then he and a buddy had put together some demos to be the next Bob and Ray. They were make, writing right. radio sketches, and then his buddy can't cut it and decides to get a job, and Bob's just hanging around, and he's doing some local TV, man-on-the-street things, and Warner Brother Records, the guy he's doing the TV show with locally is a big DJ in Chicago. Warner Brother Records is looking for acts, and this DJ says, well, I know a guy does comedy, Bob Newhart, and he, they're like, well, have him make a demo for us and send it. So Bob, he calls Bob and says, put those bits together. You used to do it. What's his name? Make them your own, and, and let's do a demo and send them to Warner Brothers. So they that became that. the button-down mind? Not quite, but some of it. So so Newhart does that, and they send it to Warner Brothers. They're like, great, let's tape him at a club one night. And, and they, he'd never been in a club. He'd well, never done funny. it on stage. <clears throat> and it took him a year to get him a gig at a nightclub where they could record. And it, and it was an opening gig. Like He was opening for four days, and the, the headliner, who wasn't a comic, it was a, another type of act, uh, agreed to switch the bill on the weekend so he could record his record. And when he went into the week, he only had four of the seven bits or whatever for Button Down Mind, and they helped him structure some new bits. So he went up there almost cold with these scripted pieces. And and then in the interim, after that gig, he said the Friday night, the chick, uh, some woman was drunk and they couldn't use. So it was all this one Saturday night show. So in the three months it took for them to produce the, the record, he did his first two comedy gigs, one in Winnipeg wow. and one in Windsor. And then the record drops, and he's an he's a international sensation, basically. But now the benefit, well, the reason I'm telling you that is that he gets to enter the life of comedy of people knowing that record. So he could tour on that record, and people were coming to see that. Right. 
And they were already his people. And I asked him, I said, well, what if you had had to go the other way at some of your peers and, you know, done the feature spot for 15 years before you made your break? He said, I couldn't do it. Right, right, right. Because he wouldn't, he would have to figure out how to accommodate that, that requirement. What anyway. is a learning curve like for people that have a YouTube bit and they get headline status right Well, which away? ones like, have lasted? I mean, you know, in my mind, you know, Bo Burnham has, has really proven to have the right. goods. You know, because he's a bright guy, he's a creative guy, he's got this incredible musical talent, and you know, he's and, prolific, and he keeps turning well, yeah, out right. bits. He, right? You know, he figured it out. But I mean, That's a lot cool. of those, I think, a lot of those guys, and even you know, last comic uh, standing, you know, these guys who have been around a long time. I mean, you know, you you can you know, he made they, you can make bank for a year touring on that maybe, um, but then you know you're kind of back to where you were usually, and it's very tricky. You know, I've always said that when you're a stand-up and that's what you do. You know, you got if you're lucky, if you make a break, you got a five or six-year window, and you know you get either you're going to make a TV show happen or whatever you're going to do. You got to you got to grab that money. I re- I remember uh, in the early '90s doing colleges at at good money and working in clubs, headlining some, mm-hmm. taking middle work, watching. Uh, going to Dana Gould's one-man show, mm-hmm. right when the one-man show became a thing that people were doing. The first one. The first one. And he's a genius. And I said, I don't have that. Oof, no one I, has that. I don't, I don't have that, and I gotta, I'm making money doing other stuff, and I started directing. It I was like, Dana. Dana shut Dana you was down. the one. And I love, I love him. Yeah. I love him. I follow his career. I take my clients to shows of him. Well, he's you. an interesting idea because yeah. at the time, because you know, he's one of our, he's, he started when he was in his teens, too, he was in, in Boston. The, he was in the Sex Fest. Yeah, briefly. But, you know, Dana's a great example of, of how comedy has changed because, you, you know, his comedy, like he can, watching Dana Gould perform on any night is like watching the history of show business because he he's a great mimic. Yeah. He, you know, he's a great, he can do, you know, long bits with several characters in them. He can do, uh, you know, he's, you know, he's a great joke writer and teller, but like he can do it all. You know, he's like, he can do it all. But at the time when we were coming up, when I was coming up, because he was a peer of mine, he was still a little too dark that like, oh, you yeah. know, he, he had the framework of, of, you know, he comedically was, you know, everything he needed to be, but like, it was still a little like, well, he's the got pathos. Three. Yes. And, and he, I think he, I don't know if you've talked to him, but it seems to me that as a standup, you know, he hit his peak specifically because the audience wasn't quite there for him. And now it is, and he's back and, and people like Maria, like if they had started at the time we started, you know, trying to, to middle and do that stuff. And be a, and do road work. I think it would have crushed her, right? So it would have, it would have been hard for audiences in Dothan, Alabama, right? Or Wichita, Kansas, or right. even even uh, even Seattle in those days, which would you would say was progressive back then. No, but you still, still had have to deal a hard with, time. You had to go to Giggles and yeah. deal with Terry. I taped two <laughs> records at that shithole. <laughs> but how do you feel about Giggles? Well, no. The weird thing was, is I knew that I, I'd have a space. It's like I need a club, and that was a beat up, you know, you know, fine comedy club in a way. Had low ceilings, you know. It, you know, it was dirty, and uh, I ended up doing two records there only because I knew that if I gave him three weeks' notice and I said I need to tape a record, he'd fill the room. Well, he barely. Yeah. I didn't like this. I don't think it was filled on either of my records, to be honest with you. Why do they tape the big specials in theaters? I didn't. I did my special in a club because I thought that's the way you should see comedy. It feels more intimate. Well, it's what it's the way it's supposed to be. It's yeah. doing comedy for big theater. You know, you know, pros can do it. I can do it, but it's not w- what I like to do. But uh, all right, so ro- I am road comic. So I am road comic was was a chance to interview a bunch of people that I admire mm-hmm. and hear their take on the road and see how it's changed. See what's still the same. It's not. Uh, it's it's 
it's the grunt work yeah. that I look at. It's not Louis C.K. selling out theaters or Dave Chappelle selling out Radio City Music Hall or even like Todd Berry, who I love, who has found his audience. And I heard him on your show talking about finding those 300 seaters and, yeah, and whatnot. What he's comfortable with. It's, it's not even that level. It's like bars, road gigs, right. and examining the worth of that badge of honor. Does it exist? And Brian McKim and, and Tracy Skeen are married. They're comedians. Yeah. And he said it best at the end of the movie, pick a, pick a city you want to live in. Draw a 100-mile radius yeah. around that city and work at that until you get good. Yeah. Like Pete Holmes, he says, work in your town, have a day job, and do comedy. And I came at it differently. I was like, if you're a stand-up, that's all you do. Yeah, me too. And, and I think now there's so many outlets for comedy and there's so many comedians that maybe it's better to have a life and do a gig or write well, and, and go and do stand-up well until I, you're better. I think that because of the way media has broken apart, you know, the possibility for finding your audience in whatever way possible is different. And and I think the only liability to it, if I'm to talk about it honestly, and I, I don't know if you really talk you about did. this. You did. You talked about it very honestly. About in the movie, <laughs> is that, you, you, you know, some... It depends what you think a real comic is and what the job of a comic is and that, you know, it's very hard for me to sort of, you know, get away from, you know, what the system was. The system was, it was a comedy club system. You know, you started doing open mics and then you committed your life to something. Then you were an opener and then you were a middle and then, you know, you got the headline, but never in your own town. That still exists. Yeah. That system is alive and in place. Right. But then all these other alternative systems exist. Right. For, and, and there's a whole comedy nerd universe out there. Right. But the truth of the matter is, like, Pete Holmes is a great comic. Pete and that crew from Chicago who, you know, like Kyle Kinane, uh, Kumail. In the movie, both uh, those guys. Uh, Hannibal. Um, you know, they all came up both doing alt rooms and doing some of the mainstream rooms, I think. And, you know, and someone like Hannibal, you know, is like, you know, he turned his back on a writing career to, to, to pursue you know, being the stand-up that, you know, he wanted to be a stand-up and he's a great stand-up. But, so there's different outlets. Right, W. Because- Kamal Bell made his own audiences by saying if you bring a person of a different race to the show, you get in yeah. free. Yeah, so there's uh, a lot of outlets. You know, but very that, creative. But when we started, it was still the club system and you're talking about the system of comedy where it's like the club doesn't give a fuck about anything but selling drinks. You know, Robert Hawkins, when he was right. in here, put it best. He says it's about selling drinks, really. And fried food. Right. You know, that's it. I mean, that's been, and you really realize that that's the truth. You know, you can, you know, as a comic, you know, if you get to a certain point, you can do a door deal or you can do a bonus structure. But that, because I always used to get panicky, you know, like, I did like the comedy works. Like I never made money as a comic until the last few years. So I go do the comedy works in Denver on a on a door deal, not a door deal, but a bonus structure. So so I got to sell a certain number of tickets. So it's either this guarantee of whatever that is, or if I sell this amount of tickets, then you get a percentage. You get a of, bump, right? Not just a bump, like a big bump. And when they first like when the first time I did well there, I sold out three or four shows, and they gave me this check. I'm like, what the what? And then it, like my first concern was, but you guys did all right, right? Like <laughs> you were worried about the club, yeah, because you want to go back, and and of course they but get how much right. do they make in, in vodka? Exactly. See, that's the other thing is like they're making all their money on that, you know. So like you know, and it took me until recently to really realize that that it's like they're not going to pay you money they don't have, you know, if you've made this deal sure. with them. Well, I, then, I was at the the Improv in Miami, shooting and interviewing people like Josh Blue and Nikki. Glazer was staying in a condo in Florida, and we filmed her there for the first documentary. And I remember the manager, we were setting up, and then the manager had a meeting with the wait staff. All very nice people, all love comedy. Right. But they were just talking about, 
we got to push the drinks sure, to get so. that before last call see if they want more round we have a bachelorette party let's seat them in the back yeah. push the appetizers we've yeah. got a new zucchini ring we yeah. want to yeah it was yeah. all about food and drinks it's a restaurant business bar and restaurant yeah. business yeah it's a nightclub business what it is well how many how many comedy clubs back in the day kept the disco ball as a reminder yeah. of an era that had come and gone I, maybe I, comedy I, won't I, last I wish it was that conscious oh is that how you saw it I just thought I saw it was like mm-hmm. yeah, I thought it was like well maybe we can rent this place out you know it's like yeah those are usually one nighters but yeah it was a whole different system but you know it's, comedy is very healthy and I think it'd be interesting for people to to watch this movie because like despite whatever we may think you, you know a lot of people aren't aware of the nuts and bolts of what uh, you know comedians go through or what it, even it used to be like like if you're a person of our age and you, you used to go to your local comedy club, you know, you still don't realize just, you know, I think the the mystique of it is like, yeah, this guy's on television occasionally. And uh, and he's just, you know, he's coming to do a show. But, you know, a lot of people don't really realize just, you know, the hell we went through. Well, the the the, the two things that come to mind, like Judah Friedlander, you, Maria, uh, Jim Norton, talk about the merch. Yeah. And, and selling the merch and doing the morning shows. Well, that's what made the difference in Charlotte, I think. I did a bunch of local media. People come out. Oh, yeah, because yeah. they don't know you. And now some people know me from the show, but like there's still a bunch of people that if they're driving to work or they're driving back from work and the comedy interview comes on their radio show, they're like, what am I doing tonight? Let's what are go we doing? See, let's go see let's the see comedy. A guy sounded funny. Well, the, the other aspect in I Am Road Comic, uh, on screen, I keep a tally of the expenses. Yeah. And I was supposed to drive up there and do a couple of one-nighters, but I called two weeks before, and the guy, or he's like, oh, I never heard from you. I booked someone else. Yeah. So I had to fly. So I'm already in the hole. Mm-hmm. T-shirts, the, Don Barnhart's like, they, they'll pay like 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. I'm giving away for five bucks. You can have three. By yeah. the end of, I lost so much fucking money. The rental car. And then, you know, we eat the free breakfast. Yeah. Oh, we yeah. take food home for the free lunch. Yeah. Yogurt and fruit. Sure. Eat at the club at night. Oh, yeah. As a road comic, man, it's we, like- We spent know. zero on food. Well, yeah, because like you want that. Like when they put you up in a hotel that doesn't have that shit, you're like, why? They're like, this is a nicer hotel. I'm like, I don't need a nice hotel. I need a place where I can get coffee all day and they have a breakfast till 10 and I can fucking go down there. It's the only way to survive. Give me a courtyard Marriott over anything fancy. Like yeah. Doug Benson- I really think he has it figured out. He does shows at 420. He books himself where a band is playing or yeah. a roller coaster he wants to ride. And he, he puts out a lot of product. I mean, I'm amazed at how many episodes you put out per week and write a TV show and still do the road. Yeah. And Doug is putting out, he has like seven or eight podcasts yeah. and video shows. He's very lucid, by the way. I mean, the weed is... is it's amazing. It's amazing. The last time I smoked... <laughs> was after some screening yeah. where Doug was there and and when someone hands you a joint yeah and you just take it because when you see that person I know you don't smoke yeah and I I quit smoking I yeah. eat it every now and then but yeah. when you're in this certain crowd you go in that mindset and they hand you the joint you don't think right and you just take it in one hit I, I had to go in the corner and sit and pretend to text. Yeah, it's to keep your shit together. I can't do it. I yeah. can't function. But he, I've seen him smoke and then riff on stage. And he's so quick. He's so quick-witted. Yeah. But I love how he has structured his road work around, like you, you go to a live podcast. Like, mm-hmm. I think that's how comedy has expanded. Well, I, I'm excited about the movie. I'm excited that I'm in it. And I'm, I'm, so, I'm so thankful you're in it. This is a wonderful 
wonderful stories, wonderful comments about your fans, you know, bringing you art, bringing you baked goods, you mm-hmm. know, things you've touched on in the show. Yeah. But to, to put it in the context, like when you watch a documentary and you see a clip out of context, to, for me, it's kind of weird. Yeah. Like even a trailer, you get a glimpse of it. Sure. The con- in the context of the movie, your point of view towards merch versus, you know, Judah Friedlander or Jim Norton, they're all, everybody has a different take on it. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. also like, I think there's an audience now, as I was saying before, you know, of people that, you know, grew up watching comedy and now, like, there's a new generation of comedy people that are very enthusiastic to, to really get a sense of, of the job and, and, you know, from all different angles of, of standard performers is, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's compelling. It's Alonzo Bowden gives some great advice to young comics. Oh, good. Well, like, there you don't, go. They, there's stuff that you would love, like, if you're going to pick up a, a woman, you, you can't leave the club. Mm-hmm. And if you go across the street, yeah, your name's on the marquee, but it's coming down at eleven thirty. <laughs> so you better, like, if that's your in, you better use it quick. Well, that's that great joke. Did anyone tell that joke in the movie? Which joke? The the movie uh, the co- comedians uh, in town doing the weekend, and it's Saturday, and he's at the mall. You know that joke? And no, no, that's great. Uh, he's at the mall on Saturday, and a woman comes up to me. You know, comes up and goes, "We saw your show last night. You're great. I'd really like to hang out with you. Maybe you know, have sex or something." Uh, saw your show last night, and the comic goes, "Really, the first show or the second?" Yeah, show? Right, yeah. right. That's funny. <laughs> That's <okay. laughs> all right. So, all right. So, I am I am roadcomic.com. It's on Hulu. It's on Hulu. I expect it'll be other places too, but Hulu. Hulu. They're good people over at Hulu. No, they definitely. have taste. And uh, well, congratulations. I'm glad things Thank are uh, leveling you. off, and you're working and. <laughs> Eventually, the uh, all the all the bad things will be behind you. Sure, we'll just keep chipping away at it. <laughs> Thanks, you know man. what? Thanks what? for having. I really appreciate your support and, and for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And, Good and to talk. Retweeting. To you. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. I, I would pick that up. Go ahead, grab it. I am Road Comic. I guess I should watch it. <laughs> I do. I, I should take a look at myself in that thing. All right. So now we're going to talk to uh, to Jay Baker. You know, if I could fill my hole with the God, if I could fill my hole with some spiritual foundation, if I could be grounded, you know, I don't know about spirituality, but I I do understand it. Uh, To me, it's like, hey, how can I be okay? Can I make something out in the world or believe something or put some things together that don't have any explanation and kind of lean on them a bit? to get a little a, a little peace of mind can i do that can i breathe deep can i pick a star can i can i just turn it over to the universe and my faith in that it'll keep working for the most part the fact is i i understand how it works in people's lives and it's been working in people's lives since the beginning of people uh you know some of it more defined than others some of it more insidious than others some of it more dangerous than others, some of that more dogmatic and organized and forced upon by threat of death than others. So the uh, the opportunity to talk to somebody that came from the world of fairly corrupt, organized religion, I would say thoroughly corrupt, organized religion, but there's mom and dad. So, you know, this kid's struggle is deeper than the one I, than I, the one I could understand, having not been really brought up with any religion whatsoever. We both struggle with some addictions, but... Uh, all in all, I, I felt like this was a, a completely compelling conversation, and I think you'll enjoy it. All right? All right. I'm going to talk to Jay Baker now. I am impressed with your, with your, your journey, my friend. 
now, do you consider yourself a, a man of the cloth? How does that work? Um, are you a minister? I am, but more of a theologian. But I mean, do you do you need a license to minister? We need a license to marry people, so I have a license. But you can, if anybody wants to, they can they can call themselves a minister. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's real. Lit. They say to marry and bury. You get a license to marry and bury, but uh-huh. I've never had to sign anything to bury anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're supposed to do it at a certain place. You know, I think if you're, <laughs> yeah. if you're out burying people behind people's backs and oh, yeah. in ditches and stuff. <laughs> That's as long it. as you're burying in the right place, I think it's probably something you can get away with. All right, so just out of curiosity, so like today we had some we had some trouble. Yes, uh, you, your guy was supposed to pick you up in Torrance, and he showed up here to pick you up, and I guess he thought maybe to take you to Torrance, but whatever the fact is, uh, you know, you run in about an hour late, and I'm losing my fucking mind. You know, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not. I was losing my mind as well. Like I was beyond. I'm angry. I mean, I almost felt like tears were about to come to my eyes. Really? Yeah, yeah. I was, I was, I was really freaking the freaking the hell out. So, as as somebody of faith, how did you comfort yourself? Well, uh, my faith is a little bit more complicated than. No, that. I know, I know, but still, there <laughs> must be some practical. So, so just in the sense of of somebody who you know who even you know we'll get into to exactly what you're doing, but I like I'm asking for as a personal, <laughs> I'm personally curious. You know, how, you know, what do you do in that moment where things are completely out of your control and you're full of uh, rage and anxiety? Well, I'm sober, so I halt and I try to not worry about it. I just got 18 years the other day and. Congratulations. So you do this sort of uh, uh, do the next right thing, stay in the present one second at a time. Yeah. I have no control over this. I try try that quite a bit. Yeah. But I was like, of course this happened. This course, (laughs) this happened because this is my life. And nothing can work out. What? Well, I'm just never excited about doing interviews. And this one was really, I was excited about. And it's just the point, point where you're like, oh, we were, oh we were, shit. We were so close, Jay. We were, <laughs> we, I, I mean, like, because I had made plans and like, it was one of those moments where it's sort of like, what, an hour late? <laughs> I got to be at my therapist at three. This, <laughs> and then I got to go to a, you know, I got a thing. And I'm like, and I know you came out here to do it. I'm like, fuck. And I'm like, I'm going I'm to have to make an executive decision. He, if he can't make it by one, that's it. Oh man, that would have been devastated. I, yeah, I would have been devastated. I would have probably called my wife crying and being like, "My life's over." <laughs> no, come on. Yeah, no. I mean, this has been a big deal. You're, 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 you're inspiration to me and what I do, and I think. Um, in what sense? In the what sense is that you're very transparent and very honest uh, about your mistakes, and you're not just like, "Oh, I make mistakes," but I mean, you talk about your marriages and you, you you're trans. Transparency is very important to me, mm-hmm. and uh, you tell stories that are about yourself that aren't uh, aren't spit shined, not comfortable. Yeah, not comfortable, and I think that's extremely important. And uh, you know, I always say that you know, comedians and, and pastors are, are close, except comedians are honest. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. Well, I mean, I cannot. It's really hard for me to fathom. You know, knowing, you know, even dating a celebrity's child. Yeah. That the, the sort of baggage that comes with living in the shadow of, of, of charismatic characters, charismatic public figures. Yeah. You know, uh, but, you know, you know, Tammy Faye is yeah. your mother. Tammy yes. Faye Baker is your mother. Jim, Jim Baker is your father. Yes. 
Yep, you know, right. and I I was young, so you know when 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 the shit went down for them was the late '80s, right? So I wasn't that young. It's like '87, yeah. So '87, you know, I was already in college, but I mean, everybody knew who your parents were. Yeah, and there was sort of like a sequence. I remember in the '80s of of high profile ministers, you know, taking the you know going down. Yeah, it was like a. Yeah, Domino but this was, you know, this was, uh, you know, to grow up in in that in in the in the world of evangelical entrepreneurship. Yeah, let alone just the 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 past, you know, uh, 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 the ministry. Yeah, that the the business model was what it was. Yeah, and now, how old were you? Because I remember they used to, you know, trek you out on that show. Yeah. Yeah. What was the show called again? Uh, it was Praise the Lord, the PTL, they kept like, changing the names, and PTL Club, and then the Jim and Tammy show. And you were how old when you were being, how old are you now? <sighs> I'm 38 now. So it, you were a kid. Uh, yeah, I was a uh, yeah small, small small kid. I was 11 years old when everything fell apart, so. So previous to that. Yeah. Do you remember your feelings about your parents and about what their their mission was? Yeah, my dad worked all the time. He never stopped working. Like mm-hmm. I didn't see him that often because he was constantly like building buildings and. But did you see it as the Lord's work, <laughs> or, or? Well, because I mean, I think that generation had the idea of like the American dream. So, and especially like Assemblies of God people. So it was like, oh, you know, we've got to be like Walt Disney or whatever, and uh-huh. so we've got to have the American dream with Jesus. Uh-huh. So I just kind of saw it as that type of thing, you know, as like this kind of... Well, they were intertwined. Yeah. That part of the mission was building out the empire. Yeah, and it probably shouldn't have been part of the mission. <laughs> but, <laughs> but who built that model? It's been around for a while. I guess Billy Graham and Pat Robertson, Oral Roberts. I mean, this was the, the tradition of, of taking uh, the ministry to that level to 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 an, uh, an empire had been established. Yeah, it I mean, well, my dad had actually started uh, the Seven Hundred Club, and Pat just owned the. <laughs> Is that true? The network, yeah, and so, so my dad basically all of a sudden Pat started wanting to host my dad's show because my dad wanted to do kind of like a Johnny Carson type show. <laughs> you went, know, he had that in him. Yeah, he, I mean, yeah. so he loved that stuff. You yeah, know? yeah, and yeah. So. Yeah. Um, and when it became popular, uh-huh. uh, Pat decided to, to start hosting it because Pat was just the, the network owner. So Pat wasn't a minister? No. <laughs> no, he just saw his kids being successful because they wanted my dad. My parents started as children's ministers and doing puppets and stuff. So they wanted my dad to do the puppet show. And my dad said, yeah, sure, we'll do it for you guys. And it was in Virginia. And he said, but, but I want to do a, a late night talk show. With a Christian angle. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to talk to people about the Lord. Yeah. I mean, my parents weren't like the real super religious conservatives that you right. would see. Well, they seemed a little, uh, they seemed like they were having a little more fun. They were having a little bit more fun than everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, they fell first and mm-hmm. everybody's hatred towards the other guys just got to be able to be more focused on us. So who was your father's mentor in this though? I mean, you know, if it was, it wasn't, ultimately it wasn't Pat. I mean, it no, was... I mean, my dad had worked with different, different ministers and stuff over the years, but I just, he had a vision, you know, it's like. He just... He almost pulled it off. Yeah, I mean, he just wanted to do something that was big. He wanted to, you know, he grew up going to like these crappy little, um, 
retreats where it was like five cabins and oh we're going to talk about jesus and uh-huh. he was like that sucks why don't we create a place that's way better than that <laughs> and <laughs> and he did you know but then he had to feed a monster and that's when the compromising started coming in is you know when you have to raise a million dollars every two days you know right start to slip a little bit yeah well i mean did you feel like early on you know in, in terms of the values you were brought up with uh did you feel that that your 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 father's faith was true? Yeah, both of my parents' faith was 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 very true mm-hmm. and very sincere. Mm-hmm. Um, but they had been raised in 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 a type of religion that said you had to be perfect, uh-huh. and as we know, no one is perfect, so you have to hide things. And then when you hide things, they fester and become darker and, and stranger. But no, my parents. We're all, it, was, it was funny because I grew up thinking God hated me, but not because of my parents. It was because the people that my parents hired to teach the children's church and to run the schools and, uh-huh. and things like that. But my, my mom and dad both always seemed to have love as a trump card. And so, honestly, I always blame, like when I talk to my dad, I'm like, Dad, you know, the, the fact I'm the way I am, I blame you. You know, you guys told me to love people and that's what I'm trying to do, you know? Uh-huh. So but you say you tell him that you blame him. Yeah, I blame him <laughs> for taking me down this road. Well, you know, because I'm I'm a lot more radical than my dad, you know, and I'm a gay affirming, and I do a lot with gay rights work. And um, but but let's like but let's go back to when you you know that you know I have to assume what was the first legal issue? What 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 was the first uh, they, the beginning the of the beginning fall? was well what happened was is Jerry Falwell came to my father and said we have information that you had an affair uh with this woman named jessica hahn and it's about to come out and it's going to be released by jimmy swaggart now if you go ahead and resign and and turn your church over to us we'll restore you and heal you and do all this stuff well they got the church and they didn't do any of that stuff it's kind of like a corporate takeover in a way and i mean i remember being a kid because we were in palm springs when all this happened and all these guys in dark suits coming in. Falwell's people. So like the lawyer um, for uh, the Hustlers guy. Yeah. yeah. That guy was there. I uh-huh. mean, they were all like. Larry Flint's lawyer. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they were all there. And it was like, you know, asking like, oh, and we need you to have your uh, board of directors step down and all this stuff. It so was, they weren't going to, to, to sh- they weren't going to stop the story. They they, were- they gave us the idea that they were going to, the story was coming out either way, but they were going to fix it by doing a, like this whole thing of restor- restoring my father like you know he's repentant we're going to help they were, they were going to create a theater of uh yeah of uh contrition yeah <laughs> uh, a, a shame like they, they the setup was is like you won't you we, you're just going to lose you know your ownership of your business yeah but we're going to keep you in the business by by giving you your salvation publicly right yeah uh, I mean, they were going to like, you're going to have to go through this and this and put them through some sort of counseling and all that stuff. And, huh. you know, Swagger was involved. Well, we found out later Swagger wasn't as involved as we thought he was. That was them just, you know, saying Swagger's going to get you. And if you don't let us help you. Because Swagger went down later. Yeah. Swagger went down probably about eight months later. I, don't, I honestly, I remember the phone call my father got one night um, of a preacher saying, I'm taking down Swagger. <laughs> Because got this preacher had hired photographers to, yeah. and my dad said, "Listen, you know this is the worst thing you can do right now. I mean, the church is just falling apart." This is after your dad went down. Yeah, 
And so my dad was like, I think you should rethink this. Yeah. And um, a guy said, no, it's too late. And I mean, literally the next day, I mean, because I was just, I was playing with my GI Joes on the ground, listening to this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> and then the next day it happened. Now, you know, it was interesting because I knew Kennison and, you know, and he, you know, did whatever he did with Jessica Hahn later. But the yeah. weird thing about Kennison is Kennison, his original agenda was to be your father. No, I know. He toured across the country preaching so he could become a comedian. He wanted he wanted the empire, but yeah. he didn't have the fortitude to uh to the 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 spiritual fortitude to stay, you know, in line with Jesus. Yeah. So that, you know, and he realized that. So he chose the other path. It kind of seemed like he always had a kind of a chip on his shoulder about my dad. Definitely. Well, I, I, I think that he had a chip on his shoulder about what your dad represented. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think it was because he comes from that. Yeah. You know. Now, now, is this, do you, like, when this went down, it, it did not, did it, did it, it, obviously the business went under, you know, it was, it was yeah, taken yeah, away. Yeah, So your dad entered financial problems. Yeah. Did the marriage survive any of this? Um, for a few years, mm-hmm. I mean, you have to remember the, the church owned our, our house, which it was, you know, they called that the parsonage mm-hmm. and I went to the school at the church. Mm-hmm. So my, everything was gone. So like we lost the church, we lost the house, we lost everything. We had to just go. So Falwell cut you guys loose entirely. Done. Yeah. When, and, without any, uh, you know, acting on his word at all? Not at all. Not one thing. So your dad. Matter of fact, to- he came out. He asked us. He goes, "Listen, I want, I want to give you guys this, this, and this. Um, just put it down on paper for me." Dad did it. The guy got Jerry Falwell got it, and then read it as a list of demands that my dad had sent him. I mean, it was just the weirdest, bizarre, like the just games these guys were playing. What's well, politics? Each other. They crushed him. Yeah, it was they, total politics, and they knew it, and they knew it all along. Yeah. They were like, you know, we just we just picked up a, a hell of a lot of valuable real estate and we threw Baker under the bus. Fuck him. Well, and yeah, and it was weird because, you know, it's like this. It was, my dad should have seen this in the first place. It's like Southern Baptists and Assemblies of God were never groups that got together. <laughs> my dad was Assemblies of God and he was Southern Baptist. You know, it was like there's something fishy. But he was so afraid about the news coming out about Jessica Hahn. You know, and nothing like that had really happened in a big church. Was that a setup? Yeah, a friend of his introduced him to Jessica Hahn. My mom had left my dad, said, I'm not in love with you anymore. And my dad went to So Florida. they were separated. Yeah, they were separated. And my da- a dad, this guy named John Wesley, yeah. said, oh, you've got to meet this girl. Yeah. And, um, you know. So that was, a, and it seems like, I mean, I don't know if it was like a conspiracy theory, like it was like, we're going to do this and then years down the road, we're going to get him, you know? Right, right. Okay. So, oh, so it was a setup in that like someone introduced him, yeah. but not well, like they- And that guy liked to have things on people. He was notorious for having- The guy that- uh-huh. The guy who did it. I mean, later my dad would find out that the guy was going to like massage parlors and telling people his name was Jim Baker, you know, that kind of thing. Oh my God. So, <laughs> so what now, so I have to assume that the, the, the sort of- you, you know the vortex of everything being taken away and you know fa- your father you know out of all of them seemed like a, a pretty sensitive guy oddly yeah that like you know when i when i think back on the intensity of all of them he seemed to have you know he was not a fire and brimstone guy no. you know he was uh you know this sort of soft-spoken yeah almost mr rogersy kind of guy yeah <laughs> Yeah. You know. And he would want to have like, he'd have like celebrities like thinking about Mickey Rooney just dying. Like Mickey Rooney would be on his show all the time. Uh-huh. You know, and like 
Gavin McLeod, the love boat guy, you yeah. know, and like the facts of life. He liked, he liked the celebrities. Yeah, yeah. They would come on and chat and talk. And, you know, I mean, my mom did a show on penile implants. Mm-hmm. She, my mom had. Uh, she was a character. Yeah. She had someone. She had a, a, a man with AIDS when Ronald Reagan hadn't even mentioned AIDS mm-hmm. yet. Um, so my, uh, my parents, uh, just did stuff and I don't think people liked it when you just do stuff you're not supposed to. And they just did it as like, oh, well this just makes sense. Yeah. These are just people. And that's where I got that whole concept of like, you're supposed to love people. From your mother. Yeah. And it's, and my dad, it's like love is a trump card. Yeah. My dad had not wanted my mom to interview these people. He would have said no so. Yeah. So I always found that really interesting. Well, what did it do to you as a person that, you know, I mean, where did you get dark? Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. Was that happened? I, I knew, I mean, it just, it was everything. There was just a heaviness over it. And well, your parents were, yeah, I mean, he was, I mean, at- I had to have security guards because we were constantly being threatened to have our be kidnapped you know and stuff like this so i had to have a bodyguard before everything went down or yeah before everything went down now of course all that disappeared and of course my father my my bodyguard tommy was actually more of a dad to me than my own father because my father was working all the time and what kind of guy was tommy tommy was this just really nice awesome guy he was like a coach you know and I was, had no athletic ability but he taught me how to throw a spiral football mm-hmm. you know and uh you know, when he would drop me off, he'd give me a hug. I mean, he ended up becoming a police officer. Um, he was my pal, mm-hmm. you know, but he also didn't take any crap from me. Like a lot of a lot of people were scared of the Breakers kid. You know, he wasn't. He would like give me Charlie horses and stuff like that. Was there a cult vibe? <laughs> you know, there's some people who followed my folks that seemed like they were kind of a cultish thing. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really feel like there was a, a major cult vibe because my parents seemed to... There were people who probably felt that way, but I don't ever think my dad and mom saw it that way. They weren't cultivating. No, and they weren't like, you need to do this or, you know. They didn't own apartment buildings and whatnot, or they did. Well, they did, and people could live there, but it was usually for elderly folks to live there too. It wasn't like, you know, you can never leave or anything like that. Um, My dad was just an entrepreneur who happened to love Jesus, and I think that was the problem, you know. It's like he wanted to, you know, have his cake and eat it too in a way. It's like, I want to be a preacher and build Disneyland. Right. Well, I want, like, we can get back to this, but, you know, you brought up that they were brought up in, in a Christianity that was based on perfectionism, and that's a misunderstanding, isn't it? Yes, it is a great misunderstanding. Well, let's get that to that in a minute. Did, did you, now, as a child, and when all this went down, when you were 11, 12 years old, or did, did, you, did you pray? Did you have Jesus in your life and in your heart? I prayed a lot when I was a little kid, you know, but I'd always just pray for my parents and my sister. And but you believed in Jesus? Yeah. So did you find that when this went down, I imagine you're looking at a lot of chaos, there's probably fighting between your parents, your father's a broken man. Um, did you? Did your faith diminish? Did you watch their faith diminish? I didn't even think about my faith at the time. It was my family was wanted to see my family survive. My sister ran away. My dad was like, pretty much canatonic for a few days and and in like the field position on a couch Uh um so i was just scared yeah kid i mean you know you have one sister i have one sister she around yeah she make it out she all right she barely made it out but she made it out she had she had a real rough time yeah real rough go at it and uh, but i love her more than anything and it's like that one person who can understand (laughs) you know (laughs) you're the only two yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> you're not going to run into somebody that's like interesting. Maybe you can relate to my parents. Uh, <laughs> I know, but I watched one of your shows where your dad makes vitamins, mm-hmm. <laughs> and my dad's made vitamins, and I was like, damn, I should have brought some of my dad's vitamins. <laughs> so he's still uh, at it. In well, some way? yeah, he's in Branson, Missouri, and doing his thing. Does and- he have a congregation? He doesn't have a congregation. He just does his TV show and, and you know music and all that stuff. And people, we, we don't, we don't, me and him don't see eye to eye on almost anything. But we just try to be father and son, and that's can that's difficult. So, what was your journey then? Once you, when, when did you sort of go rogue? <laughs> uh, I guess in uh, around thirteen, four. Well, about actually, I started drinking about eleven. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bartles and James wine coolers. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> Thanking them for their support. Yeah. And uh, it just went on. And in high school, I wanted to be popular. I mean, it was one of those things where I wanted to be with the popular crowd and they yeah. were all drinking and partying. And I drinked and partied and smoked weed and tried to have a fun time. Was and, there a stigma on you? Yeah. I mean, I did some fighting. Yeah. But there was also a lot of like the cool kids got like, this guy's somebody's kid. Let's yeah. party, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, Fighting, but, defending your family? Yeah. I mean, I remember one time in particular, I was in class and this, I was defending some girl and then this guy who uh, kind of shut down, you know, and then this guy looked at me who I'd shut down and said, uh, whispered and he goes, how does your dad like getting it in the ass in prison? You know, and he was about four, four chairs from me. Yeah. So I stood up and just started throwing chairs, boom, 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 uh-huh. and went to hit him. Unfortunately... Uh, my Florida history teacher got in front of him before I hit him, and I barely missed her. So, you know, that was five s- school days in suspension. He got to go out of school. I was like, this is not fair. Uh, that was in Florida? He, yeah. And I, and I was in a Christian school before then, and they would, you know, they treated me horribly. The Christian schools were actually more worse than the public schools. What I, The story I just told you was in public school, but even before that, they put me in this this Christian school, and they were just... It was just awful. When your father was in prison? Yeah. Who was taking care of you? Your mom? My mom, yeah. And then my mom ended up divorcing my dad. While he was in prison? Yeah, and and got married. And I um, I wanted to move in with a family friend because I didn't want to leave Florida at the time. Mm. So I That's something you'll never say again. <laughs> <laughs> you are correct. Now, did you get along with the new guy or what? He was okay. Yeah. So, all right, so you're drinking drinking you're stuck in florida did you actually move in with family friends or did you? yeah yeah i lived with a family friend i got a, it's funny i got a job at this christian television station doing camera work really yeah and i was like super didn't care yeah. so i'd always wear like my clinton gore t-shirt right and it would just drive them insane <laughs> and i had one of those shirts that was like you know like 90 shirts it was like kill your tv you know and they were <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. he's such a problem <laughs> so you're all punk rocking it yeah acting you know, out acting out and they're like sitting there telling me that you know Bill Clinton's the Antichrist, and you know I'm sitting there with my Clinton Gore. Shirt why, on. why did you end up working there? Did you did what, did your family name uh, help I, you in that? Uh, yeah, well, I dropped out of school and I needed something to do. In high school, a job dropped out of yeah. high school, and uh, I went back and got my GED later. Um, but I worked there. I needed a job. I actually ended up saving enough money to get uh, some turntables techniques. Mm-hmm. And I was going to DJ a little while. Uh-huh. That was kind of fun. That didn't work out very well. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever get in a regular band? Uh, yeah, I was in a social distortion cover band. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you really... So this was, it's interesting because what... It seemed like it, that in, 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 the, in the aftermath of, of your, your parents, you, you know, um, 
you know, public shaming and, and financial bankruptcy and uh, criminal, you know, issues, judicial issues that you were able to sort of have this free reign rebellion that any kid, you know, sort yeah. of has, but yours was sort of public and it, it was a little more loaded than just a regular kid joining a band or, or yeah. lashing out or having a few cocktails. I mean, because you represented, uh, you know, this 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 you know public corruption of christianity uh, yeah and it you know and it would have been a lot easier had i not loved my parents yeah but that was the problem yeah. i loved them and i knew them as my mom and dad and that was it would have been a lot easier if i was like yeah this is a bunch of bullshit you know but and i really cared about my parents did now in, during this time where you were you know djing and drinking and <laughs> did was was jesus part of your life not really. I mean, it was uh, kind of the back of my mind, you know, kind of like one day maybe if I'm on, you know. Oh, really? You know, it was one of those things where it just wasn't there. So it's interesting in in in, in light of of who they were that you know you really saw it, saw it as more of a business. Yeah, I mean, I really believe they genuinely believed it, and and there was that essence that I thought was real, but the business part of it, I just didn't. It wasn't there, you know. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. Also, it was this kind of thing where I felt like my parents always felt like they needed to get it back. And and so you kind of felt like you got caught up living in this constant, like, need to go back to the glory days or we've got to get this place back or we'll never be who we truly are, you know. And and that's not a, that's no way to live. Did you visit your dad in prison? Oh, uh, yeah. How long was he? I in? was actually the one who told him my mom was leaving him. <laughs> it was awful. Oh, my God. Yeah. How long was he in prison? He was in prison for about five years. Wow. So like 13, 14. I can't imagine that it'd be on the other side of that glass like that. Is that the way it was or was it tables? Or? They had tables. Yeah. It was a medical facility. It was, it was they had the, all the gates. Yeah. You know, and all the f- bob wire and right. all this stuff. It wasn't the golf course or right, anything. Right, right, right. Um, and I think they had the medical, him at the medical facility because they were afraid he was going to get stabbed or shanked or something like that. And they wanted to try to protect him as much as they could. And that, were they afraid that he would take his own life? No, I think they were afraid someone was going to take his life. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he had problems. He had issues, you know. He, he had he went through some shit. Yeah? Yeah. And it's it, my father became an unrealistic hero in a way for me, though, because he was in prison. Yeah. And so he didn't have to do any of the discipline or anything like that. That was mom's. My mom was the one putting the lock on the window so I wouldn't sneak out, sneak out you know. Uh-huh. My dad was a guy I got to see a few hours uh, every few months. Mm-hmm. So it was like, my dad is yeah. awesome, you know, yeah, and yeah. it was so hard to focus in school and stuff. Cause you know, I was like, I just want my dad to come home. And when he got out of prison, you know, the expectations were gone and we didn't get along very well. Now your mother, like I, I imagine the, the journey with your mother was a little tricky because she came, became such a caricature of herself publicly. It, and it was weird though, you know, like people would have those, I ran into Tammy Faye mall on the mall t-shirts, yeah. which was the splattered makeup stuff. Yeah, yeah. And she would sign them and she would embrace <laughs> it, man. You know, I always told her, I'm like, mom, I think you're so beautiful without makeup. But yeah. you know, she had a, her self-esteem was really low. So she did that. But at the same time, She's like, I don't care what these people say. Everybody's telling me to take my makeup off. Everybody's telling me to tone down. Yeah. And I'm not going to do it. Like most women, when they did Christian stuff, they would take their jewelry off before right. they went on. Right. My mom kept her jewelry on. Yeah. You know, she just, you know, it's like almost in in some way it was, she was somewhat naive, but it, the, the beautiful part of that was that she actually cared about people. 
Yeah, well, I think that vulnerability is is what made her compelling. Yeah, it, it also made her a target. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, that's the weird thing about vulnerability. And the crying, you know, I mean, one, she did feel deeply, but two, she have also dealt with addictions to like Ativan and Valium and things like that. Oh, and really? If you've taken any of that, yeah, you yeah. know, you can get the weepies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it makes you a little heavy hearted. <laughs> yeah, it does. Very sensitive. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what was your drug of choice ultimately? Well, I started doing LSD. I just loved LSD. I just thought it was great. I went to the first Lollapalooza. Was tripping like crazy, and this is when you could still get some pretty good LSD. Yeah, and um, and and smoking weed and all this stuff. But then I started getting flashbacks around like sixteen or seventeen. I started getting these panic attacks that felt you know you know when everything looks too real. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, all of a sudden it's like the trees are too green. What's yeah, happening? Yeah, right. I'm freaking and, out. And people's faces look sort of glossy. And, yeah, you, yeah. yeah. You know, like you see their pores. Yeah, and um, that freaked me out. So I was like, oh my god, what am I gonna do? And I had this, my dad had this old psychiatrist friend who gave me um, Thorazine. Wow. Obviously, the guy hadn't been to an update, updating like for, psychiatry right. class in quite a while. Who was the Thorazine for? For me. Oh, my God. For the flashbacks, of course. They were awful. I was like. So you went to your dad that you said, yeah, I'm strung out on LSD. Yeah, I'm like, dad, I'm going crazy. If I have to have a piece of my brain taken out, I mean, I'm freaking out all the time. And they Oh, put, so you weren't high and you were getting. Acid. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So they, they put me on the Thorazine to try to help, and that was awful. That's old school. That so, must have knocked you out. Oh, yeah, it was awful. So I said, screw that. And I was like, Jack Daniels, uh-huh. I can drink. Yeah. And drinking works, and it doesn't give me flashbacks. Matter of fact, if I start to get one, I have a drink. Now, I was I was experiencing time travel quite a bit uh-huh, yeah. with my drinking. Yeah. David Tell style time travel? Yes. Like you blackout time travel? Yeah, yeah. You know, throw up on your shoes and you don't know where you are. You know, girls throw Where were you living? I was living in Orlando at the time. And But your father wanted to help you. Yeah, I did. That's something. I mean, and he was trying to help me from prison, which is quite hard. <laughs> so he felt bad. Yeah. I think he was worried about me. And your mother? My mother was worried about me, too. She I mean, tried I, to help you? Yeah. Oh, I remember I came home drunk one night, and she's like, have you been drinking? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I knew I was busted. I was like, yeah. And she's like, I'm going to pray to God that the next time you drink, you get so sick that you'll never want to drink again. It's so odd to me. It's so like amazing that like you know, you're know you going home <laughs> and having this moment with Tammy Faye Baker. It's not, oh, I mean, it, I sat down <laughs> with my mom when I lost my virginity because I got crabs the first time I had sex. What did she say to that? Well, I tried to, I told her that I got him from borrowing somebody's shorts. Sure. And then one day I came home and she's like, uh, Jamie Charles, because that's my full yeah. name. And I was like, yeah. She's like, I need to talk to you. I was like, oh, what? And I'm like going through the roller decks in my head of everything I've done yeah. wrong. And I sit down and she goes, yeah, I talked to a doctor about the crabs. Yeah. You didn't get those from sharing somebody's shorts. <laughs> and so she had like the condom talk with me and stuff. Uh-huh. She's like, I prefer you don't have sex, but if you are going to have sex... You need to use condoms, uh-huh. you know, so uh-huh. it's surreal and weird, you know. I mean, I look back at it now, you uh-huh. know, if I try to see it through your eyes, it must really seem wild, you no, know. No, I, you know, like I, when I think back on her, I actually had, I, I don't know if I still have it, but I had a copy of her her album. Oh, okay. Her record album. I don't know if I still have it. Um but I, you know, I always sense there in both your parents, oddly, because I, I have nothing but contempt for Falwell or Swaggart. 
because you know they 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 were clearly showmen. But you know your your parents always seem so fragile to me. <laughs> yeah, we're a fragile group, man. <laughs> it's not just them. Yeah, I'm a pretty fragile guy. <laughs> you know, it's you like know. there was a, the vulnerability was not far from the surface. You know. <laughs> Yeah, I, sometimes I'm uncomfortable on the freeway. Okay, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I you know, I, I suffer from panic attacks and, and you do. all sorts of stuff. And yeah. yeah, I'm a neurotic. And, yeah, yeah. And uh, that's why I say it's the first time I saw your thing and I saw you out there with these books yeah, talking yeah. on a thing. You're yeah. like, I don't know if I'm prepared or not. And yeah. I was like, yeah, I like this guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is my guy. I got He's got a TV show. I got to watch this guy. He can barely keep it together. Yeah. So ultimately, what leads to your your personal, you know, y- 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 your turn towards, you know, recovery and 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 personal mission? What you know, what what was uh, what well, led I, up to that? I started a church with some friends of mine. Well, my dad sent me away to get sober, but he sent me to be a part of like this church program. Yeah, and uh, I didn't last a week. But there was these other guys who were like trying to start this like punk rock church, and I was like, I'd much rather try to do that. What like the 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 Stephen Baldwin thing? No, 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 no. no, no. Okay, <laughs> but you but had you ever thought about doing the the ministry before? I mean, I like, thought about it. I thought I'd join the Peace Corps. Honestly, I okay. thought that might be you know yeah. something more down my lines because I did want to help people for some reason, right? And um, but my dad sent me away because I was, when he got right out, I got to prison. I was drunk all the time, partying, you know, never coming home, you know, and he's like, you got to do this. Did he see you as a, a, an extension of the embarrassment? I don't know if he saw me as an extent. No, I think he saw me as my son's life's falling apart. And, right. And I'm a good Christian man and I've got to do the right thing. He still, he had that. He still he, has that. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, he sent me away. and To where? to phoenix arizona mm-hmm. to be a part of this thing called a master's commission which is just a, basically a bunch of kids learning how to like witness to poor people and you know do like little shticks like rip phone books in half and then talk about jesus you know really kind of weird bizarre stuff but it was mission stuff yeah yeah and i didn't last a week yeah because they had a lot of rules yeah and i don't like rules yeah. <laughs> and uh but there are these guys who had come out of it who were starting this little punk rock thing called Revolution. And I was like, hey, I love that. Yeah, that what was the cool. idea? Well, the idea was is that we just we had shows and then someone got up and talked for 15 minutes. And what were the shows? Um, punk rock shows, all sorts of different bands. Okay. Yeah. And we were doing that and it was pretty cool. Was and, that when you got the tattoos and the piercings and everything uh, else? I got my first tattoo then. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I got my piercing stuff later, but I only lasted there for a year because I felt uh, there was the alcoholic was still alive in me. There was no like I hadn't gone through recovery. Right. I was just a dry drunk for a year. Uh-huh. And I had people around me telling me like, God's telling me this, that you're doing such thing. Or like my buddy would just be like, I'd come back from a trip and he'd be like, yeah. God spoke to my heart that you were drunk. You know, I'm like, yeah. Really? I mean, yeah. obviously I was drunk when I was not here. You know, yeah. that's, that's a given. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, uh, so that, that was kind of the, that was kind of the thing, you know, that was the, I just felt so guilty. I left. Yeah. And so, and just started drinking. I went and got a job at the gap and just decided to drink. Commit to drinking. Yes. Yeah. And then. And Denim the, expert. Yeah. Alcoholic. <laughs> so there you are, Jay Baker working at a gap where? <laughs> oh, it was in Atlanta, Georgia. Lost. Lost. In the gap. Yeah. And when did you meet your wife? 
Uh, which one? The first one. <laughs> I didn't meet my wife until, uh, well, I got, I was going to a psychiatrist at the time, and he said, I, I told me I was an alcoholic, and I had a different picture in my mind what an alcoholic was. Sure. So I got sober, or tried to get sober. In Atlanta. To, yeah, I went to a steak and ale meeting, uh-huh. yeah, like a dinner, yeah. dinner meeting. I've never been to one since. Like, yeah. We're yeah, having a meeting, yeah. and we're eating. It was weird. And, and I picked up my chip, and that was 18 years ago. I met my wife a few months. Uh, You've not uh, been to a meeting since, or did I have a steak? And ale? <laughs> I haven't been to a meeting since. It no, means, yeah, I haven't. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I haven't been to a steak and ale or a uh, food meeting of some sort. I don't yeah. know what that was. Lunchtime meeting. Um, so you locked in with the sober thing. Yeah, yeah, I did that, um, and in about probably about four or five months into my sobriety, I met Amanda. Yeah, and. Uh, she was really pretty, but you know, when being newly sober, I could not communicate with anyone because I'm extremely introverted, and so I drank I, to talk. You found that once the alcohol was taken away, you your your conversational skills were limited. Yeah, yeah. She uh-huh. she. I remember at one point her saying, I, "I don't think this is going to work out," and I was like, "Why?" And she's like, "You don't ever say anything." Uh huh. Um, and I was a chain smoker, and I remember she quit smoking because my smoking disgusted her. Because I, she, she smoked too, but so you helped out. Yeah, I helped her out. <laughs> Just you know, sometimes I'd have two cigarettes in my mouth and not even know it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. So that's how we. Uh, she worked at this coffee shop, and I really liked her, and I just kind of kept showing up. <laughs> yeah. How long did that marriage last? Uh, about seven years. Wow. It's hard when you lock in in that first year, isn't it? Yeah. Because you're kind of using them to... Yeah. Yeah, and I had I th- that one. Yeah, and I think, you know, yeah, you know, and then you see that maybe they have similar tendencies, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, yeah. Did it end ugly? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, buddy. It's okay. So now where does... Uh, all right, so now you, 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 you've turned your back on this revolution idea. You're not a dry drunk anymore. You, you, you got sober. You got married. And and where does the evolution, how does Jesus come back into the picture? Well, I had a pastor buddy of mine that, who would always take me, he knew I liked to drink, and so he would just take me to the bars and make sure I got a ride home. And I was like, what is this all about? And he's like, man, you know, it's just, it's grace, it's, you know, God's love, all this stuff. I was like, The oh. drinking? Not the drinking, but the fact that, that he wasn't like condemning me mm-hmm. for drinking mm-hmm. and the fact that he didn't want me to die in a car accident. Right. And, you know, and so he kind of was like, cause I was like, dude, I just, I feel like God hates me, you know? And he told me I was full of shit. You know, Why'd you feel like God hated you? Um, cause I couldn't do anything right. I felt like, yeah. I felt like I can't get off booze or, you know, assemblies of God is, is like your salvation is like trying to grasp sand. And so, you know, that's the perfectionism uh, thing. Yeah. You know, it's like be perfect for God, which no one could do. It's but isn't that a misunderstanding of the idea of sin? Yeah, no, completely. No, you're a hundred percent. But at this time I'm, you know, 18, 19, not. And that's what planted in you. Yeah. Planted into my head. And, and so one day I said, you know, I thought he was into this grace thing because it helped him sleep at night. You know what I mean? Like whatever helps you sleep at night, buddy. Um, And I said, prove it to me. I said, prove to me somewhere in the Bible that there's this type of thing where I, God loves me if I'm a drunk or if I'm not, mm-hmm. you know. And he had me read the book of Galatians. And the book, like, blew me away. And I, What did it say? It just said you're loved, you know, no matter who you are, what you've done. You know, it said 
you're accepted. It's not about works. It's not about earning things. It's not about the law. And it's just stuff I'd never seen before. I, because, you know, my parents didn't do, like, we didn't have Bible study at home. You know what I mean? Like, my dad bought me, like, He-Man and Dungeons and Dragons. You know, that, that stuff didn't matter to them. You know? like Really? Yeah, like, all my friends were like, we're not allowed to play with it. That's evil. You know, my parents were like, toys aren't evil. That's ridiculous. This whole perfectionism thing is, is troubling. It's very troubling. Because yeah. nobody can be perfect, and, and the idea is that, that God wants you to be perfect for him. And so everybody's lying to each other. Right, and, and, and that's not the teaching of Jesus. No, no. And then, you know, the church also started, you know, started the uh, don't ask, don't tell, you know. I mean, yeah. there's plenty of LGBTQ folks working in the church. Um, Probably was, hating themselves. Hating themselves, and, and also just, you know, everybody was fine with them as long as they never said it out loud. Like, even if Everyone knew. Yeah, like, oh, I have a roommate, Bob, you know, and they're like, oh, Bob yeah. and John are really awesome. We love them, you know, but well, they, they know never that have they... to say anything, we have to let them go. Well, that was, but yeah, but that was probably also the prison of like, they knew that, you know, if they were on some level, if they were to do, to be part of the church, that that church reinforced the shame. Yeah. So that becomes almost like a Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. Is that, you know, you're safe here as long as you don't really, you know, accept who you are. And uh, and and you maintain that level of shame, which must have been what hinged them to the religion to begin with. Yeah, that's it's so fucking tricky. No, it's nasty. So and I just get interested and I start learning about the Bible and and uh, I'm probably 19 at the time, uh-huh. 20, and I start to get Hebrew and Greek translation books and yeah. start to get into that and I start yeah. to realize that oh, all this horrible thing that people have been doing to others in the name of this book. Yeah aren't actually in this book. Right. And uh, it's not about the perfection or, you know, I don't know, works and all that crap. It was it was like there was this unconditional acceptance about it, and it was blowing my mind, you know. And Jesus seemed to be more upset with religious people all the time than he ever was with anybody else. I mean, right. The religious people, he would just drove him nuts. He's like, you know, you guys are like, whitewashed tombs or right a brood of vipers you know <laughs> it's like so it was one of those kind of freeing things that i wasn't reading it through like the american evangelical glasses anymore uh-huh and, and even as i've gotten older you know i try to read the bible through more of the glasses of what christ says mm-hmm. you know so when i look at the old testament and i look at everything out you know I try to see it through Christ. So like in the Old Testament where they're like, God told us to strike these babies' heads onto rocks, you know? Mm-hmm. I go, okay, Jesus said love your enemies. So I'm going to guess that that was those guys' best understanding at the time of what God was. <laughs> right. You know? So when did you start preaching? I think it was 19 or 20. And I, uh, I remember my first sermon. I wrote out all these notes and uh, they were awful. It was awful. Where'd I mean, you do it? I did it in Atlanta at this youth group, and I swore to never do it ever again after I did it. In an organized situation yeah, like that? Yeah, it was awful. Why? No, not even an organized situation. It just was awful. It you, was, oh, you weren't going to preach anymore? Yeah, I bombed, okay? Yeah, you know? I'm sure you've never bombed, but you know, that feeling is, yeah, okay, you know, you get up in there and you're just like, oh my God, this is the worst feeling I've ever had, and I'm never ever going to do this again. Did you tell your father when you decided to preach? I don't remember. You really don't remember? I really don't remember now. Huh. I, maybe I did. I probably did. I was, uh, but I'm sure I did. That was a, it's a, <laughs> that was all around like getting sober time. You know, my brain was just like. But didn't you find it interesting within yourself that you were going to now take up this, this, this challenge and this, this occupation 
that that you know that was what you grew up in didn't yeah but it wasn't i didn't see it that way because i felt like i had been something new had been revealed to me you know it's kind of like uh when luther was you know walking down and the lightning stuff and yeah the reformation happened i mean i kind of felt that that's what was you know there's something new but there was no sense of like my parents as good as they were we're missing we're missing the point yeah now okay i do remember calling my dad now that you say i would call my dad at night and talk to him about grace and say, yeah, this is amazing. And he's like, I know it's there, but sometimes I feel it's too good to be true and all that stuff because really? he's been raised to say that that's not right, you know. That or God that, doesn't love everybody. <laughs> yeah. I mean, God loves everybody, but, you know, I mean, we were, we were, were free will. So that was, you know, people had to make their choice, you know. That's the same way God. Yeah. I mean, yeah. better than the predestination thing where mm-hmm. people are like, these people were all made to suffer in hell and mm-hmm. <laughs> burn for eternity and right. these people are okay. You know, it's so like. So free will is a little more like, you know, hands on in terms uh, of determining what God's will yeah, is. Yeah. You know, and that's why you get a lot of those people like, let's go to the mall and talk to people about Jesus. Right. You know, and be really uncomfortable. All right, so okay, so you're having these conversations, and there, you know, there is a, a an intellectual component of your dad actually discussing the thing that that blew your mind, which yeah. is that you know, if grace exists, then then the ministry has to be for all, yeah, without question, yes. And he's like, that's a little tricky, yeah. And 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 did you was it contentious or did you say, well, I'm going to mm, go with it? No, it wasn't contentious. Contentious. It, it, it did come a few years later when I decided that I was announcing that I was uh, gay affirming. Mm-hmm. Well, wait, where did the congregation start? How did you build your reputation? <laughs> um, I went to a lot of music festivals mm-hmm. and I spoke at those events and people got to know me. Um, and I started a little church. I started Revolution again. I called it Revolution in Atlanta. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And did you have a congregation? Yeah. How many? Oh, well, I was in Rolling Stone. I know. And when I was in Rolling Stone, it was like, you know, we had like 200 people show up. Of course, then like yeah. five months later, it was like, there's 15 of us, you yeah, know? Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I mean, it was anywhere from 15 to 30, but it's crazy, you know, because I, 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 you know, I buried kids. I, I, I you know, I, I went through seeing a lot of horrible stuff. Like what? Just living through these kids' lives. You know, there's You're struggles primarily with drugs dealing with, with and, kids? Yeah, but well, with like teenagers and yeah. stuff, you know, and and uh, dealing, going into court with them and all the stuff. And f- they're not much older than they were, you yeah. know what I mean? And I'm like, and their parents are like, come into the court with us or come to the high school and talk. You know, so, like, I feel uncomfortable in the principal's office just as much as anybody else. You right. Know? So it, the intention was a, a ministry to young people. Yeah. I mean, my idea was, my hope was, is that the church would change and become a different thing. Mm-hmm. It just happened to be young people were attracted to that. And the fact that I was into punk rock and had tattoos and stuff like that, uh, you know, you know, people just use that as the shtick. But know? initially you're just straight up, you know, uh, driven by grace. Yeah. And then you decided to politicize it on some level. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Uh, well, eventually. Yeah. And when, and when did with, you know? with gay rights and yeah. stuff? But I mean, I I just felt like I was following in the footsteps of people like Martin Luther King. You know, you can't be silent anymore. You know, yeah. you have to speak up. And how was that received? <laughs> <laughs> not well. <laughs> by who? By almost everybody. Um, well, not uh, maybe the established church. The established him. church. No, there was a, gr- a lot of churches that are appreciate what I did. But I all my speaking engagements that I had that year all got canceled within literally like a day. For for basically uh, your your speaking engagements based on youth ministry, 
Um, yeah, and and I was also speaking to other churches, and, and you know, I didn't just speak to youth. Why were they everybody. asking you to? Why would you? Why were they asking you to speak? Because they like to hear my message about grace, and it challenged them, and you know. And it's funny because sometimes uh, the people would argue with me saying, oh, you're t- preaching too much grace. You know, I would get in trouble for that. So I've always been used to getting in trouble for something. Yeah. You know, as I've grown, I've, I feel like I've become more interested in theology and, and philosophy and trying to focus the church as a whole. But I mean, I want people to feel safe. I want people, I mean, it's impossible to make it, people feel safe, especially in church. But I want people to have a less stressful life. You know, I would yeah. like to see people not suffering because of who they are. Yeah. And I'd like to see the church stop being morons and, and, and so hateful and angry and tearing people's lives apart. Uh-huh. Um, that's what I would hope for. But, you know, as I, I read philosophy and theology, my, my everything is changing. I'm like, right now, I just feel like I'm in the midst of a huge change. In, um, in terms of, like, some of this stuff actually happening. Yeah, and you know my faith, you know my belief system. Do I believe in God? You uh-huh. know, and sometimes I don't, and uh, I have a lot of questions, and and I I have a theology that I found uh, to be best. Uh, I think John Caputo said it best: is it's a weak theology. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a fundamentalist theology. It's a weak theology that maybe sometimes I can't defend. Mm-hmm. It's a theology that's like, you know, hey, this is what Jesus did, and this is what happened, perhaps. Yeah. You know. But I mean, can't you you separate the mythologizing of the life of Jesus from the message of Jesus? Yeah. And that's what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just going further and further into that. So uh, when you've been taught one way your whole life and you kind of start to to grow and and understand things in a different way and it can be, uh, you know. A little rattling. Mm-hmm. And how, you know, it might be a delicate subject, but I mean, when your mother was sick. Yeah. Um, you were there the whole time. Yeah. And and it took a while, huh? Mm-hmm. It was awful. And what was her discussions during that period in, in terms of her faith? Well, she was always faithful, but one time I remember she got really upset and... You know, me and my, it was me and my sister, and uh, you know, she's like, I don't know why God's letting this happen, and then you know, everybody kind of got real raw and was like, well, you didn't go back to you know get your chemo like you should have, and uh-huh. all this, and it came a huge fight. You know, she was scared. You know, yeah. um, it was tough. I mean, I, I she would stay up all night, like re situating her clothes one night by size, and then another next by color because she was so scared. And having such bad panic attacks, that, oh, that was yeah. the only thing that could get her off of her, you know. Uh-huh. And I mean, she was, uh, you know, she looked like a skeleton. I mean, it was, it was she was fading away. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I didn't see her body when she died because she was so much life to me, you know. But th- around the same time, my marriage was starting to fall apart. And uh, literally a week after my mom died, that's when I found out my wife was done. <laughs> so big time. Yeah. That's when it usually happens all at once. Yeah, that's that great. kind of stuff. I mean, luckily I was kind of born and raised in the Briar Patch, so I <laughs> I can exist somewhat. And <laughs> when things are too good, that's when I start to get nervous. Did she have any peace at the end? Um I'm only asking that because no, no, these no. are these are religious no, people. No, and what I'm I, I guess the answer for me is I 
because I was working on my marriage, I didn't get to be with my mom much that last month of her life. Uh-huh. But, um, so I don't know. And I don't seem as religious people. I seem as my parents. I know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, Human yeah. beings. And yeah. when the rubber hits the road, you know, it's it's different. It's tough. And yeah, it, you it, have these questions and it's like, who gives a shit? You know, yeah. where, where are you, Jesus? If you're here, that'd be great to see you. But right now my mom is dead and I don't know what to do, you know. So now, but you're starting, you know, you're starting a new church here, right? Well... Actually, I've been doing a church in Minneapolis um, and Minnes- just moved to Minnesota about a year ago. What, what brought you to Minnesota? My lovely new wife got a job at Blue Cross Blue Shield. <laughs> well, that's noble. Yeah. And uh, you know, she's, she's, she's agnostic. She's not a believer. So Really? Yeah. Uh-huh. She's super awesome, too. And uh-huh. she like, comes to my things. And when I talk, she's like, I have no idea what the hell you just said. You need to figure out a different way to say it. Oh, really? So yeah. she's a good editor. No, she's great. Yeah. And you, and you start a congregation up there? Yeah. Um, I don't know how long it's going to last. I've been thinking about maybe doing a, um, the majority of our listeners listen online. So I've been thinking about doing an online, just doing the sermon, doing a sermon online uh, uh, every week. And uh, then just meeting up with people wherever I'm at, on the road or in town and stuff like that. You're not adverse to, to, to doing, uh, to doing uh, ministry in, in bars and in, in wherever? Yeah, no, I do. Yeah, I mean, that my church I'm in right now is a bar. The church I've been in before was a bar. The church before that was in a bar. Is that, is that sort of a, a, an honor to the pastor that taught you about grace? I never thought of it that way, but probably in a kind of a beautiful way, yeah, you know? And it's also common ground, uh-huh. you know? I don't know if you ever went to church before, but, um, you know, it's kind of creepy. You're walking in, and it's like their place, and everybody's dressed up, and you're like, oh, there's no neutral ground here. Heavy vibe, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, like, sometimes it's scary organ music or, like— it's Definitely it's, designed to blow your mind. Yeah, and a lot of bad music. Like, yeah. we worship God, and I'm like, God must really be pissed because the music we worship with really sucks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, so we don't even have music at our our, our, our church just because I think it's a trigger for so many kids who grow up in that stuff. It's uh-huh. just because they hear this, oh, we love you, Jesus. We yeah, want yeah. to be your boyfriend. And then, you know, the same people were beating them up and kicking them out of their homes if they were coming out or things like that. So, And your folks are from Minneapolis or your folks are from Wisconsin? My, uh, strangely, my, my mom is from International Falls, Minnesota, the uh-huh. highest you can go. My dad was from um, Michigan, mm-hmm. so and everybody always like plays them as Southern preachers, yeah. which is really funny. Like on Saturday Night Live, and they're God wants you to. And I'm like, oh, they're Northerners. If you ate my mother's food, you would know she was a Northerner. Yeah, it was bland Northern food. <laughs> then did, do you do you feel a connection towards your mother in that state? You know, it's funny. There is some times where she used to work at Woolworths, and it's not there anymore. But I know where it was. Uh huh. And I, my psychiatrist's office is right there. Uh-huh. So when I go down there every week, it's like I see that. And there is kind of that feeling uh-huh. of being where my mom was. My mom's very important to me. Yeah. You know? And it's, her memory lives on with me really well. Uh-huh. You know, I keep pink elephants around because uh-huh. one time when I was a kid, when she overdosed on medication, yeah. she thought there was a pink elephant <laughs> in the closet. <laughs> and I stood up and I said, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus, pink elephant. Uh-huh. But after that, it kind of became a joke between us. Yeah, you know, yeah. these little pink elephants. Yeah. So, and I say that because it's just like my wife's like, you really are being connected to your mom lately, you yeah. know? And I'm like, yeah, I, I really miss her. She was a good friend. I, I would have called her today. <laughs> really? If you were freaking out? 
No, I would have called her today to tell her what I was doing. Yeah, yeah. Because I think she really would have been excited for me. Sorry. It's okay. I don't mean to get emotional. That's all right. But, um... Making me emotional. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a little raw myself. Yeah. Uh... You know, this is, yeah. I mean, I'm 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 excited. You know, this yeah. is this is I'm excited with things are happening. You getting along okay with your dad? Yeah, yeah. We had a really cool talk on his birthday on January first. My sister was there, and it was it was pretty cool. We hadn't had that kind of conversation in a long time. You know, but we're awkward guys. I mean, we're two men, and we're like don't know how to relate to each other, and we have a lot of the same quirks. Yeah, you know what I mean. And you're just oh, oh. and a different, but different stuff that we think each other is crazy. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah, you know, you can't. It's hard to 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 sort of tame the parts of them that are in you. Yeah. Well, it was great talking to you, Jay. You feel Uh, all right? I do, man. It was an honor to talk to you. I really, I'm a fan and I'm really glad I got to do this. Now, you said that your sermons are available online or they're not? Yeah, they are. I'm available online at uh, revolutionchurch.com. Okay. And I'm on Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff. And if anybody wants to help my failure book, it's called Faith and Doubt. (laughs) It sold 600 copies. Don't be so doubtful. Maybe... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know you comedy lovers love good theology books. <laughs> well, best of luck to you, man. Oh, thank you. That's it. That's the show. That was something. Good guy, that guy. On the path. On his path. As we all are. Some more diligent than others. Some more aware than others. Uh, Look, go to WTFPod.com and get that app, folks. A lot of people are just getting on board after some recent episodes, and I want to encourage you and them to get the free app and upgrade to the premium. The most recent episodes, the most 50 recent, the last six months, uh, I could probably frame it like that as well, are always free, but then they go behind a little paywall, and then you got to get the premium app. So get that free app at where you get apps for the WTF app and upgrade to premium. Go to WTFPod.com. For, uh, for information about my upcoming dates. If you want to buy some merch, some posters, some t-shirts, if you want to leave a comment, you can do that through Facebook. Uh, on the uh, on the, uh, on the the site, on WTFPod.com, you can pick up some JustCoffee.coop there. You get the uh, WTF blend. I get a little, little bit on the back end. Uh, yeah, you can you know do what you got to do. All right? Okay. I think I have a problem. Boomer lives! Boomer lives!